0: A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny, And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show.
1: All right, we got a full new month ahead of us. Brand new week ahead of us, a bright day ahead of us, and uh, and I got a lot to, to share with you today. Listen, I want to share something. This is this is going to be kind of self serving, but I'm going to ask you if uh, if you are not familiar with uh, the little Substack that I launched back in November. It's called Hide in Plain Sight, H Y D E in Plain Sight. And if you haven't checked this out, I'm going to ask you please take a couple of moments, re- seriously. It will take you less than two minutes to click on one of the episodes, give a listen to it, and just just see if it resonates with you. Now, I, you know, I almost hesitate to confess this, but I, I'm kind of excited about it in that I'm trying to get this broader exposure. So, yes, I guess I'm asking you, please make it famous. Please do your part to, to share it with people around you. But you'll notice it's a very non-political. Kind of of project. It's just simply little principles and 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 ideals and things that that are easy to overlook when we're consumed with other stuff that's going on. That uh, nonetheless add purpose to our lives, hiding in plain sight, so to speak. That's kind of where I get it. And I, I do not charge a subscription. There are people who are paid subscribers, interestingly enough, and and I I greatly appreciate that. But. I send this out as far and wide as I can. The reason I do this is because I want to use what God has given me to work with, whether it be time, talents, you know, um, platforms, whatever it may be, opportunities. I want to use them as wisely as possible. And this is one of the ways that I have uh, have kind of keyed in on in the last year. And, and I, I don't know why, but I, I just, I get this sense of harmony with the universe, or this sense of of alignment with with God's purposes for me that uh, that is really hard to describe, but I feel like I'm on the right path with this. And so what I'm asking you, shamelessly asking you to do, is uh, please check out Hide, H-Y-D-E, in plain sight at Substack. And if it's something that resonates with you, feel free to subscribe, feel free to share it with friends. I'm trying to use... My time and talents for purposes that are, are good and uplifting and empowering. And I think this might be one of the better ways. So thank you for letting me share that with you. Shameless plug. Now, let's dive into some of the stuff that's going on. I don't know about you, but I spend probably more time than I should thinking about uh, finances, thinking about the economy, worrying, if I can be precise, about what's happening. And one of the questions that has come up lately, and I've had this discussion with a couple of different people, is, okay, so what happens if the U.S. dollar loses its reserve currency status? Now, the implications would be big because with the dollar at, uh, as reserve currency status, the U.S. government still can, under the fractional reserve banking system, under the Federal Reserve, essentially print whatever it needs and, and basically incur debt to spend whatever it needs to spend. Basically, our, our imperial military presence abroad requires something like this. So if the, if the dollar goes away as a reserve currency, guess what we cannot afford anymore? Mm-hmm. Which kind of puts our, our leadership into a use-it-or-lose-it sort of proposition. I don't know about you, but that doesn't exactly fill me with a sense of optimism. But is it possible that the dollar going away as a reserve currency status might actually be good for ordinary Americans? Ryan McMakin from, uh, from the Mises uh, Institute says, yes. In fact, he says earlier this month, Larry Kudlow insisted that it's incumbent on the U.S. government, no matter who's in power, to maintain the reserve currency status of the dollar. Now, Kudlow laments that the toppling of the dollar from that perch seems to be the direction we're going in. Those of you who follow this, a lot of you who send me information on this, are right on top of that. Kudlow's remarks came a day after Donald Trump declared that China is trying to replace the dollar as the number one currency and that if this occurs, it will be the biggest defeat for our country in its history. Ryan McMakin says, look, neither Trump nor Kudlow actually explain why maintaining reserve currency status is so important. After all, it's not clear that it's, uh, it's clear rather that it's not necessary for a country's currency to be a reserve currency in order for that country to have a high standard of living and a high degree of economic freedom. We could look to Norway or Switzerland to see that. But his point here is what's good for the government isn't necessarily good for the people. And he says Trump and Kudlow seemingly can't tell the difference between, you know, what's good for them and good for us. The idea that the global reserve currency status for the dollar is essential to America relies on the false notion that the interest of the U.S. regime and the interests of ordinary taxpaying Americans are one and the same. But he says those interests rarely coincide, coincide, rather, and they certainly don't when it comes to reserve currency status. This is especially the case when the dollar is unbacked by any commodity like gold and is simply a floating fiat currency that can be inflated at the will of the regime at any time. Now that dollar reserve currency status benefits the regime itself. He says that should be obvious. But this status for the dollar does indeed allow the regime to more recklessly inflate the dollar and increase deficits. This enhances the U.S. regime's ability to bribe voters with enormous welfare programs and involve the U.S. regime in a dazzling array of wars that have nothing to do with defending U.S. territory. None of this, however, improves the standard of living of Americans who pay the bills. So Ryan McMakin says, look, rather for Trump and Kudlow, it appears that the uh, supposed importance of reserve currency status is not about economic concerns, but is really a political project. That shouldn't surprise us, given many of the narratives surrounding the dollar status, which focus on China and Chinese geopolitical power as the main reason to fear a decline of the dollar. So it isn't about protecting your wealth. It isn't about reining in government power. It's about increasing U.S. government power in the name of fighting the latest foreign axis of evil, in quotation marks. Now, something that uh, McMaken points out here is that in any case, there is no imminent threat of the Chinese yuan replacing the dollar for a variety of reasons. Number one, the dollar's role in the world economy is still huge, and the dollar remains the most used currency by far. This becomes all the more obvious when we look at how much the U.S. dollar still dominates foreign exchange reserves, which are assets in foreign foreign currencies held on reserve by central banks. These reserves are partly an indication of just how much central banks anticipate dollars will be needed to engage in international trade. Now, dollars still make up 58% of foreign exchange reserves, And that's far above even second-place currency, the euro, which is just a mere 20%. All other currencies are far beyond that. Behind that, rather. So the Japanese yen makes up about 5.5% of all reserves. The pound sterling, just under 5%. The RMB, that's the Chinese yuan, is in fifth place at about 2.7%. But even if the RMB did become a top-tier global currency... Ryan McMaken says that would still pose no threat to Americans who've never been more secure internationally. Rather, he says, reserve currency status for the RMB would primarily enable the Chinese regime to further rip off its own domestic population for the same reasons reserve currency status allows the U.S. regime to further rip off Americans. Now, from here, he goes into why reserve currency status enhances state power at the expense of the taxpayers. He talks about the effects of losing international currency power. But the bottom line is, he says, let's say, for example, the U.S. dollar sinks to 40% of all foreign reserves and is only used in one-third of all international uh, trade invoices instead of one-half, as is now the case. That wouldn't necessarily destroy the dollar or the U.S. economy, but it would certainly constrain the U.S. abilities to pile on another trillion dollars worth of debt without the true cost of mounting debt becoming abundantly clear. Perhaps more importantly, he says... A world less awash in dollars will mean a world with less demand for U.S. assets, such as U.S. government debt. That means higher interest rates for the U.S. government and less of an ability to finance elective wars by inflating the currency. See what he said? That's not necessarily a bad thing. Now, naturally, politicians and pundits like Trump and Kudlow view any threat to this kind of state power as a bad thing. But at this point, he says how we feel about it is irrelevant. It's going to happen regardless of our feelings on the matter. The only way it doesn't happen is if the U.S. regime suddenly starts slashing deficits in government spending, embraces a strong dollar policy, and maybe even anchors the dollar to a commodity like gold. But none of those things is going to happen without first experiencing a wake-up call on the level of losing currency reserve status. And he says the good news is such a wake-up call will weaken the U.S. regime potentially forcing policymakers to embrace a more sane fiscal and monetary policy. What do you know? I mean, it sounds bad, right? And then it comes back with that last line. Well, maybe. Maybe that's not such a bad thing. Look, I think one of the best things, not just for, for those of us as citizens of the U.S., but for everybody in the world, would be for the U.S. government to be reined in. But until that happens, we're all a threat. So I'd like to see that uh, that collar put back on a choke
0: chain, if you will. I'd like to see us yank it hard. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to the
1: sponsors who make this program possible on a day-to-day basis. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, berelli.com If you're into the shooting sports, really great place to check out for daily specials. And TMCPNation.com. That's my friend John Harvey, the Modern Conservative Podcast. John's a great guy, by the way. I hope you'll click on his link and check out some of the swag and merchandise that he has. If you uh, if you're the kind of person who doesn't mind wearing you know conservative T shirts and hats and things like that, I think you're going to find some of the merchandise that he has on his website is really worthwhile. Besides the fact that John is just one of those clear voices who is very unapologetic in defense of freedom. Wish there were more people like him. So, wars and rumors of wars kind of seems to be the the thing for our time. And, I don't know what it, I don't know exactly what's going on, you know, over in Ukraine, other than the, the U.S. is neck deep in it and uh, pretending that, uh, you know, this is, this is a fight for democracy in the world. But I think most people with with half a brain cell can can figure out, no, for, for some reason, there there's a very close tie between those in the U.S. regime and those in the uh, Ukrainian regime and, and whatever that tie is. Well, let's just say that the U.S. taxpayers are on the hook for hundreds of billions of dollars to to help them out. Regardless, you know, um, it's it's sad. I, I don't mean to make light of this because I think there are a lot of people suffering right now and and uh, dying and being horribly injured, and it's it's ugly and it, and it has every appearance that it seems to be intensifying. So, if you want to know a little bit about wars and wars and what's going on, um. James Howard Kunstler is pretty tough to beat on this one. He starts with a quote from Paul Craig Roberts. When we see the truth, the few truth-tellers who are the stars of their organizations jettisoned, Tucker Carlson from Fox News, Matt Taibbi from Rolling Stone, Glenn Greenwald from The Intercept, James O'Keefe from Project Veritas, we must face the fact that there is an organized conspiracy to suppress truth. You know, you start adding them up like that and uh, he's got a point. Now, James Howard Kunstler says the weird part the news media isn't telling you about World War III is that America's main enemy in this struggle is the U.S. government itself. America's looking like that crazy person on the street, punching himself in the head. How do you explain this epic act of national self-destruction? He says the Joe Biden regime is standing up for our democracy, trying to silence all and any public speech about what it does in the world and how it treats its own citizens. Meanwhile, the entire scaffold of American life crumbles, and you're not supposed to notice it's happening. And the funny part is that the Democratic Party thinks this is an election strategy. The funniest part of the funny part is that we bother holding elections at all. You understand, Joe Biden is only pretending to run for president again, in the same way that he only pretended to be president for the last two years. Are we to believe, for instance, that the old zombie has become a fervent Maoist? or that he follows any known structured political philosophy at all, other than cashing checks that favor-seekers from all nations send his way? Joe Biden is pretending to run, no matter how preposterous it seems, because his handlers know that only a titanic pretense of political strength can stave off the reveal of his family's awesome criminality and the fall of everyone hitched to that wagon. So much for the funny stuff, he says. Things are getting to the point where we stop laughing. He says it's only a question now of how the calamity rolls out. There are so many more parts to it, and they are all out of hand in the most disastrous way. The Ukraine project is a big part. It was prodigiously stupid to provoke a war there, and the side we backed, the Nazi-ish Zelensky regime, has already lost. You just don't know it because the American news business is a joke on the American public. It reports nothing honestly. Ukraine is the latest in a string of hapless military adventures that has exhausted America's credibility in the world, especially as regards to our military superiority. Think uh, Russia's Kinzhal hypersonic missile. There will be many suspected consequences of of that failure, rather. One will be the crack-up of NATO, which has only been a false front for American military power. Germany, he says, couldn't fight its way out of a duffel bag with what it's got, and it supposedly is Europe's leading economic power. The sad truth is that it will stop being any kind of power without cheap Russian natural gas it was running on, and later this year, Germany will be in a panic to try and restore its horribly damaged trade relations with Russia to get that natural gas. Since NATO's essential mission is to oppose Russia on everything, that will be the end of NATO. Europe will return to what it always has been, a region of squabbling national interests. Let's hope Europe does not become the slaughterhouse that it was in the la- uh, become again the slaughterhouse it was in the last century. Kunstler says the failure of the Ukraine project could easily stimulate a collapse in Europe's banking system, which would instantly spread to America's banking system as obligations dissolve and payments stop. Now, the net effect of all that will be the vanishing of a whole lot of capital, including the money in bank accounts, the money invested in stocks and bonds, the money lodged in pension plans and the money controlled by insurance companies. He says, as I've mentioned before, and it's worth repeating, you can go broke two ways. You can have no money or you can have money that's worthless. We've been steadily following the latter path through the Joe Biden years, but we're close to simply not having money at all. Being broke will get Americans' attention, and the first place they'll look is the party in power. Multiple scandals have finally caught up to Joe Biden and are escaping the formidable suppression apparatus erected by the deep state's legal department. Attorney General Merrick Garland himself is now directly implicated in obstruction of justice by an IRS whistleblower. The allegation is that Mr. Garland interfered in the case against Hunter Biden in the Delaware U.S. Attorney's Office and then lied about it to Congress. On top of that comes a new allegation with hard documentary evidence, testimony by former acting CIA director Mike Morrell, that Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan arranged as Biden campaign officials in 2020 For 51 intel officers, including five retired CIA directors, to sign a phony letter denouncing the Hunter laptop as a Russian disinfo project, knowing it to be untrue. And a case can be made for that amounting to election interference. So all of that's fairly fresh news, says James Kunstler. For many months, it's been known that Representative James Comer of Kentucky, chair of the House Oversight Committee, has possession of bank records that show more than 100 instances of the decanting of millions of dollars from foreign lands into various Biden family accounts. That doesn't look good. Matter of fact, it looks impeachable. On top of all that, observers are reporting that more than 10,000 illegal immigrants a day will be crossing into the USA from Mexico in the weeks ahead. Alejandro Mayorkas' Department of Homeland Security and Mr. Blinken's State Department have made arrangements with international NGOs working through the UN to systematically conduct these immigrants across the border, furnishing them with pre-cooked phony asylum documents. And this week, Senators Cory Booker and Pramila Jayapal of of, uh, Washington Introduce legislation to allow unrestricted immigration to any person claiming to be LGBTQ. Ha, go figure. Co-sponsors of the bill include Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. How is any of this re-election strategy? Well, James Howard Kunstler says it's not. If these matters are not adjudicated, it will be a civil war strategy. Now, I get it. That's he's He's using some pretty direct language. And, and if it makes you nervous, it, it should. Look, people who aren't uncomfortable right now, as they just try to get even a sense of what's going on around us, are people who are not paying attention. Maybe they're too demoralized. Maybe they're just too beat down. Oh, uh, what's the use? Uh, it's all hopeless. Whoa, it was me. But the fact is, right is still right. Wrong is still wrong. And even if it seems hopeless or it seems like, well, the deck is so hopelessly stacked against us, I mean, how could we, how could we possibly do anything? I think the case can still be made that uh, we still need bringers of light. We still need people to stand up for what is right, what is true, what is good. I just know that personally, I don't care how futile it looks, I'm going to stand up for what I believe to be the truth right to the bitter end.
0: I hope you'll do the same. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. And again, thank you so much for
1: sitting down and reveling in wrong think. For some people, this is a daily exercise. For others, it's, you know, I'd just like to check in once in a while, see if Hyde's still out there on a rant. I am. (laughs) Thanks for checking. I really have enjoyed uh, reading the columns of J.B. Shirk. uh, He's a writer for AmericanThinker.com, and the guy definitely has, I think, a great slant on why freedom matters and, more importantly, why it not just matters, but it matters enough that you and I, Have to find the courage to get off our butts and stand up and and walk into the flames of history with some courage and conviction. His latest essay is called "Government Without Consent," lacks legitimacy. And I think this is something that we need to be reminded of. Okay, we might we might bray, you know, just uh, occasionally bravely brush up against it, you know, on the Fourth of July. That's right. Yes, we without consent of the governed, why it can't be legitimate, but. The rest of the time, we just kind of go along because that's easier. Less friction, less name-calling, less, uh, I don't know, less chances to be criticized or otherwise ostracized from polite society. So J.B. Shirk says, look, America is the story of freedom. It was settled by those determined to rid themselves of old-world shackles and build something entirely new. Its people rejected servitude to a foreign king across the ocean, It fought a bloody civil war as testament to its founding principles that liberty and equality under the law (coughs) are human rights irrespective of race. It became home to waves of new immigrants through the centuries who crossed great distances and risked tremendous perils, all to flee the tyrannies behind them and reach America's shores. Because no other nation has ever been birthed into existence by first recognizing that its legitimacy comes directly from the consent of the governed. America has remained a magnet for people all over the world who dream of being free. And I hope you just let that sink in for a second about, it really is, it's the idea that legitimacy comes directly from the consent of the governed. Most governments don't act in that way. In fact, our own has stopped acting in that way. That's what makes it so difficult. Anyway, back to his article. He says, when cultural saboteurs attempt to rewrite America's history as one replete with racism, murder, and hate, what they really desire is to brainwash Americans into forgetting who they are and why they fight. He says, the U.S. government, like all governments filled with imperfect souls prone to corruption and ambition, will use the strengths and passions of the American people to fight all kinds of battles that have more to do with D.C.'s welfare than the country's politicians will say we're fighting for democracy or against terrorism or so that we don't have to fight them over here. But he says, rarely will you hear those politicians use freedom as a call to arms, even though America was forged and invigorated by an indomitable spirit yearning to be free. And so he asks, why, why would those in positions of power forsake freedom as a rallying cry when no other word better signifies who Americans are? what they've done, what they will do in the future. And the answer is that the American government has become no different than the English one it overthrew, intoxicated by its own power to such a degree that it has deluded itself into believing that control over those it purports to govern is its right, is its, rather, by right. In turn, individual freedom and the voluntary consent of the governed that only only freedom can maintain have been abandoned so a cumbersome government bureaucracy may rise beholden to no one. He says if federal officials and corporate media pundits attempted to rally Americans into foreign battles under a banner of freedoms, under the banner of freedom, rather, Americans would have to be reminded that the same people and institutions sending them into harm's way have cheaply squandered their own birthright. A government that long ago abandoned any obligation to seek consent from those it claims to control cannot afford to remind Americans that they were once masters of their own fates. Doing so would risk inciting the passions of the people and turning those now quietly enslaved against their bureaucratic enslavers. Is it any wonder then that the department of justice defines anyone who dissents from official government policy as extreme diversity of opinion cannot be tolerated within any system predicated on public obedience for its survival. And so he points out the events of our day pick up speed. There's both an awakening among the American people that they've long been deceived about the health of their freedom and an increased urgency among America's permanent ruling class that a new iron curtain of control must drop before that awakening turns into outright resistance. When government authorities choose control as the source of their power, then totalitarianism is the inevitable result. J.B. Shirk says neither freedom nor consent can survive in such a system. The present task for the American government then is to lull the public back into a state of narcoleptic dependency, divert their attention with mass propaganda, intimidate them into apathetic compliance, and ratchet up displays of force. Consider just how far D.C.'s bureaucratic tyrants have gone to undermine the American system. A nation born from such deep mistrust of government that its founders went out of their way to design a constitutional structure forbidding the exercise of any powers not explicitly enumerated now endures a judicial branch that rewrites laws according to its subjective feelings, a legislative branch that has delegated much of its authority to an unaccountable administrative state, and an executive branch that too often rules by the imperial decree. He says a nation born from such a deep commitment to the inviolability of God-given rights that its founders reiterated some of those inalienable rights in the first ten amendments to the Constitution as glaring admonitions to any future governments, lacking the cognitive abilities to read and comprehend the plain language of the Constitution's original text, now endures a federal bureaucracy that works to censor Americans' free speech interfere with the exercise of their religious faith, deny their right to self-defense, conduct warrantless searches of their private communications, and impudently infringe every other liberty explicitly guaranteed to Americans by the Bill of Rights. He says a nation born from such antagonism to centralized authority that its fathers created a federal republic, recognizing most powers as exclusively retained by the respective states or directly by the American people, now endures an ever-expanding federal leviathan insisting that the states and people bend to the collective will of not only the vast collection of bureaucratic busybodies running D.C., but also the international inter- institutions, rather, that have usurped America's national sovereignty and now direct assert rather direct jurisdiction over the American people. His point is that America's constitutional system has been turned inside out, and upside down. At no time did the American people provide their consent to these radical changes. At no time did the American people relinquish their inherent prerogative to determine for themselves when their government has acted beyond its delegated powers. At no time did the American people lose inalienable rights that cannot be vitiated through government decree. At no time did Americans lose constitutional protections whose meanings cannot simply be rewritten to suit the interests of the state at no time did the American people reject their historical calling to be free. When the federal government, whose existence continues only to the extent that it abides by the terms of its contractual framework, instead betrays the plainly written language of its own legal genesis, then it forfeits constitutional legitimacy. You understand what he's saying, right? Because we said so is not a golden ticket providing D.C. with infallible authority. He says the government in D.C. is in the empire business. Obsessed with projecting power across the globe. The American people, however, are in the republic business, rightly concerned with preserving their rights and liberties here at home. What's happened in America is what's happened throughout history where nations with republican virtue gallop down the path of empire. Civic promises once held sacred are betrayed. Without any vote or consultation with the American people, D.C. transformed into a limited and sharply defined central government from a limited and, and and sharply defined central government into an amorphous blob beyond ordinary citizens' control. And like an obese beast whose innumerable innumerable folds long ago spilled over its constitutional belt, the same charter once meant to constrain it has been hidden beneath gluttonous excess. And he says that must change. There's nothing extreme about citizens and state governments refusing to respect the authority of the federal government until it begins to act within the limits of the Constitution. There's nothing extreme about citizens and state governments choosing to enforce their own borders when federal authorities actively encourage foreign invasion. There's nothing extreme about citizens and state governments working to create viable precious metal-based workarounds to a federal tax and spend system that's already crushed Americans' wealth by empowering private banks to print paper money and will further erode private property through the imposition of central bank digital currencies. There's nothing extreme about defending speech from state censorship. He says, Federal bureaucrats have become a threat to the Bill of Rights. They've rejected the binding terms of the Constitution. And they increasingly lack legitimacy. Legitimacy. Now, these are words no politician is going to want to hear. They will say, that's dangerous, that's seditious to even talk that way. Just remember, they are breaking their part of the contract.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. A couple of articles
1: I would like to touch on in the final segment here today. I've got, uh, this, is, this is a fun one from John Miltmore from the Foundation for Economic Education. And look, I like most people, I get kind of irritated when I see Hollywood actors and actresses wade into, you know, political issues. Well, you know who I am? <laughs> I'll tell you how you should all think. But occasionally I see one stand up and kind of buck the trend. And I have to say... I have some grudging admiration, in fact, I may actually have not not just uh, grudging but non-grudging admiration for actor Tim Robbins, who lately has really been taking the media to task, and even his own political party, for being silent while the First Amendment's under attack. Here's the article from John Miltmore. He says, Tim Robbins won an Academy Award in 2004 for portraying a victim of two terrible crimes in the neo-noir crime drama Mystic River. Well, on Monday, he made it clear he's not content to be a silent victim. In a tweet that reached nearly 3 million people in 24 hours, the longtime Democrat and Bernie Sanders supporter ripped Democrats who threatened reporter Matt Taibbi with prison following his congressional testimony on the Twitter files. Robin said, what an embarrassing, shameful time for Democrats and the free press. You are losing any shred of credibility you had, you effing fools. Now, Robin's comments stem from a letter published last week by investigative reporter Lee Fang, which showed Representative Stacey Plaskett threatened criminal prosecution against Taibbi, who she falsely claimed lied under oath during recent testimony at a congressional hearing titled Weaponization of the Federal Government on the Twitter Files. Taibbi is one of several journalists who were given access to Twitter's records, which showed a sweeping effort by the federal government to censor and control information on a massive scale even when it was true. Robbins praised that reporting, highlighting Tabby as well as journalists Barry Weiss and Michael Schellenberger, who who Robbins quoted, quoted, tweeted, Recently, independent journalists have been exposing a massive censorship operation by the U.S. government to control content on social media and eliminate any dissenting voices. Robbins wrote, Could be the most important story related to our personal freedoms in the U.S., and it's being buried. Mainstream media have not only ignored the story, but now attack the journalists. Now, John Miltimore says Robin's comments come just days after the arrest of Jack Teixeira, a 21-year-old National Guardsman from Massachusetts, who stands accused of leaking secret government documents. Teixeira, who remains in custody and is expected to appear in a Boston courtroom on Wednesday, was put behind bars with the help of the New York Times and Washington Post, which assisted the Pentagon in its search. These actions are a stark contrast to the Pentagon Papers, which were released by The Times in 1971 and won the paper a Pulitzer Prize for exposing the government's secrets and lies about the Vietnam War. Many have noted the irony in The Times suddenly working with the government to plug leaks, much like Richard Nixon's plumbers during the Watergate era. Literally every day, Major media corporations public leaks of classified information from anonymous officials, noted Pul- Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Glenn Greenwald. What's the difference between them and Jack Teixeira? The media outlets are publishing what the government orders them to say. Yeah. Now, these revelations are deeply troubling, says John Min- Troubling, says John Miltimore. We're taught in school. That the fourth estate is one of the great protectors of freedom. Thomas Jefferson once noted that our liberty depends upon freedom of the press. Unfortunately, there are still some, while there are still some brave journalists working within the corporate media dedicated to truth and government accountability, it appears that media institutions have largely been co-opted by the state. Now, students of CIA history aren't going to be surprised by this. In his best-selling book, The Devil's Chessboard, David Talbot chronicled just how effective the agency was at planting stories in a docile media during the Dulles years. It appears that things have only gotten worse since. Most media appear to be little more than what economist Murray Rothbard described as court intellectuals, compliant servants of the government whose task is to bamboozle the public into accepting and celebrating the rule of its particular state and they're rewarded with access, scoops, and book deals for it. The failure of media to come to the defense of Ta'ibi after receiving overt threats of imprisonment for his work in exposing the government's efforts to subvert the First Amendment, combined with the assistance of the Times and Post to the Pentagon in tracking down Teixeira, are hardly signs of a thriving, independent media. In Robin's words, rather than check on gov- a check on government power, rather corporate media has become the thuggish censorship arm of the government. Riding this ship to reclaim a free press and free speech will not be easy, but the Shawshank Redemption actor offers a clue on where we might begin. Oh, and by the way, Free Assange, writes Robbins. Kind of powerful stuff. I only mention this, this story because it also came to light that uh, this last weekend, I guess, was the White House press correspondence dinner. And, you know, if you want to see, you know, what, what has become of the national press, that's as good a place as any to see Oh, they congratulated themselves and ha, ha, ha even gloated a little bit over Tucker Carlson. Oh yes. He's finally gone and what a, but uh, but the one journalist out there who sits languishing in prison, not a mention of Julian Assange. They don't see that they're part of the problem. They don't see that uh, they smell like the machinery. They are part of the machinery. I guess they just like that contact high, but we're in touch with power. <laughs> that makes us important people i got one other article I wanted to touch on here in the final moments. Uh, this is from Josh Hammer from American Greatness about Tucker Carlson and the struggle for civilizational sanity. The sub-headline here is, those of us on the side of civilizational sanity need all the help we can get in pushing back against the onslaught. He says, last Friday, I attended the Heritage Foundation's 50th anniversary gala. A sprawling and swanky affair featuring many fine presentations, a surprise Dirk Bentley mini-concert for country music enthusiasts, yours truly among them, and an extravagant post-dinner fireworks show over the Potomac River. But the highlight of the evening, bar none, was former Fox News star Tucker Carlson's electric keynote address and his all-too-brief colloquy on stage afterwards with Heritage's exceptional new president Kevin Roberts. Carlson's speech was both wildly entertaining and poignant, at times slapstick funny, at other times humorously self-deprecating about his Episcopalian faith. But as Carlson began to reach his peroration, per- peroration rather, the the key substanti- substantive takeaway he wished to impart unto his audience became clear. The relevant political and cultural battle lines in the year 2023 are not those befitting a civil and polite discussion where both sides are reasonable, both sides pursue their own version of the common good, and the best think-tank white paper wins out in the end. Carlson cautioned, No, our current civilizational struggle is not reflective of a refined policy debate between amicable partisans. Rather, it is one that implicates fundamentally distinct theological and anthropological visions of mankind, of man's very biology, and his relationship with his fellow man, the state, And God himself. Now here the author says, I immediately hearkened back to an interview Claremont Institute President Ryan Williams did with the far left Atlantic back in October of 2021, where Williams had this provocative but accurate line about America's contemporary fault lines. Quote, Even during the Civil War, I think we're more divided now than we were then, as Lincoln said, we all prayed to the same God. We all believed in the same Constitution. We just differed over the question of slavery. End quote. This is the precise sentiment that Carlson was getting at in his keynote speech at the Heritage Gala last Friday. We in the audience did not know it yet at the time of Carlson's speech, nor did Carlson for that matter. But the broadcasting star had already given his last searing monologue for Fox News in a stunning development. Fox News broke the news to their highest rated host on Monday morning that he was fired. Hopefully Carlson will retain something approximating his exceptional level of cultural and political influence in whatever role he next serves, because his witness to truth and civilizational sanity has never been more necessary. This is perhaps most clearly true when it comes to gender ideology and transgenderism, which is the issue most directly implicated by Carlson's framing of America's fundamental divide as a struggle between differing theological and anthropological conceptions of man. Is sexual dimorphism an obvious empirical reality rooted in Genesis 1.27 and mandating legal codification for any regime that claims a basis in truth or justice? Or is gender instead fluid wherein man can replace God and change his gender on a lark and wherein it is contemptible bigotry to deny anyone's subjective sense of biological or sexual reality? Well, Tucker Carlson certainly knew his answer. He opened a memorable 2021 interview of former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson by asking the then-sitting governor who had shamefully vetoed a bill to protect vulnerable children from the predatory scalpels of the woke, besotted medical establishment, why he had come out publicly as pro-choice on the question of chemical castration of children. Oof. There's more to this article, but I'll let you discover that for yourself. It's in my show notes at the Brian Hyde show.com. I think the most powerful part of the speech that uh, Tucker gave to the Heritage Foundation a week ago Friday was where he just he came right out and put it in terms of, look, this is not just a matter of, well, we have some political differences, you know, left versus right. We are facing more and more a question of good versus evil. And I know that's a pretty stark contrast, but... I got to give him credit for calling it what it is.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.